Today we are jumping into John chapter 4, and uh, if you joined us last week or watched the video from last week, last week was the mountaintop. It literally was the pinnacle of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. John 3.16, probably the most famous passage from the entire Bible. Pretty much, if you're a Christian, you've heard it. If you're a non-Christian and someone has told you about the gospel, you've probably heard it. That is the gospel. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gives only one of a kind son. And whoever believes in him and entrusts him with their life and soul will have everlasting life. They will live forever in paradise. So today... We're going to kind of pick back up with the story of Jesus. Last week, it was a lot of the, the um, philosophy and the, and the uh, spiritual nature of Christ. Today, we're going to jump back into the story of, of Jesus on his journey. So let's just kind of recap where we're at. So the book of John, the Gospel of John, is a bit unique in the sense that it, it in contrast to the synoptics, which are what Gospels? Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Contrast to those starts with a Judean ministry right off the bat. So Jesus, he goes to John the Baptist. He is baptized. The Holy Spirit descends and remains on Jesus. And at that point, according to the author of John, Jesus begins his Judean ministry. So let's talk about the map, the squiggles that we call a map. Um, this, is, this is Palestine in the first century AD. What we have is... The land that we call Israel today is this region right here. We have the land of Judea, which is where we get the name Jews. Judah, or Judea, was the name of the province that the Persians gave to the place where the Israelites went and resettled after the conquest. So that's why we call them Jews today. This is Judea. Jerusalem is their capital. This is where the temple is from the books of the Bible that we read. The temple... Mount Zion, <clears throat> the mountaintop where Abraham supposedly was going to go and sacrifice Isaac, that is exactly where the temple is. That's the second temple in Jerusalem. <clears throat> then we have the region of Galilee. And if I have my markers here, I should probably write. <clears throat> so <clears throat> here we have, and you're not the only one who clears your throat. So yeah, it's me too. <laughs> it's super annoying. Nazareth is there. Capernaum, give or take. Capernaum right about there. So Jesus, and then if we were to know the whole thing here, we'll just fill it all in. Bethlehem, Bethlehem, south of Jerusalem. Bethlehem, Jesus is born, spends uh, two or three years on a sojourn in Egypt, comes back and lives in Nazareth and grows up in Nazareth. But then as an adult, he tends to live for a while in Capernaum. So Galilee is a region on the north side of all of this where Jesus grows up and where the synoptic gospels focus Jesus' ministry. But we have this thing in the middle. What's this thing in the middle? Samaria. So this is a rewind to the Old Testament. The kingdom, united monarchy of David and Solomon, ruled over united monarchy of 12 tribes. The 12 tribes were roughly correlated to physical regions within Palestine. After the Assyrians come and attack in 722, they cart off all of the people, well, most of, of the people, I would say, of the northern kingdom, which is called Israel, and it's kind of confusing. The northern ten tribes of Israel are called Israel. Those people are largely carted off, never to be seen or heard from again. But in the meantime, before that happens, they have established their own religion, in a sense. If you want to think of it this way, physically, in the northern kingdom, 
they have their own temple. They decide to build their own temple on this mountain called Mount Gerizim. So this is kind of their equivalent of, of Jerusalem. And this is all set up for today, and this is why I'm going into this. They have their own written texts. They have their own laws. A lot of them are very similar. They consider themselves children of Jacob. So they acknowledge the fact that at one point, they and the Jews of the first century had a common ancestor. But they had their own separate worship. And of course, as we know, the northern kingdom, all of the kings of Israel were wicked and worshipped foreign gods. Baal, Asherah, Ashtaroth, so on and so forth. <clears throat> so all of that caused a lot of problems. And a lot of those people after the Assyrian conquest left. Now, what happened was there was a remnant. Those people did not come back and resettle like the Jews did, but a remnant of their religion remained, a remnant of their beliefs remained, and so the people in this region still to some degree had some of the beliefs, and of course, um, and I believe up until the first century BC, Samaria itself, Samaria is actually a town as well, <clears throat> there was a town, this is, I don't even know if this is exactly, it's right around here somewhere, the town of Samaria is completely raised by one of the Judean priest kings, if you want to call it that way. Long story short, these people are considered wicked by the Jews. They do not associate. They are considered to be unclean. And if you were a pious Jew of the first century, if you had to travel from north to south in this region, would you? and, and let me just say, there is a major, major highway, and this is going to be so messed up now. There's a major highway that goes right through here. Megiddo, as you've, as you've read in the in the New Testament, a place where the apocalypse, where the Armageddon will happen, is, is right along this highway. This is a major highway. The Jews would not take that highway. They would not go through Samaria because they felt that they would be defiled if they did that. And remember, often going through a region meant you had to, you had to spend the night, you had to eat with these people. They didn't want to have anything to do with it. So often, the Jews, if they had to travel north or south, they would go to real, this Transjordan area. This is the Jordan River right here, folks. This is where Jesus got baptized. They would literally go way out of their way over to this Transjordan region to go up or south to Galilee and back. Okay, that's the setup for today, all right? And the setup too is that we're kind of, we're kind of finishing the first initial Judean ministry that Jesus had. Now we pick up with John chapter four. Who would like to read for me? John chapter 4, verses 1 to 26. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A, man from, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, 
Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I love this passage. I, this is one of the first passages, some of the pieces about, I will provide to you a spring of living water welling up inside of you. It's one of the first things I kind of memorized from the Bible, the concepts I memorized. So first, let me just ask you guys, what did you take from this passage? What sticks out to you? And, and what you're saying and maybe getting at, he knows it before you tell him, maybe. Is that what you're getting at? Okay. He's also not afraid to not follow the customs of the religious rulers of the time. You know, he's not afraid to go through Samaria even though no other Jew would go through there. Yep. Okay. Excellent. What else? It starts off talking about he was weary, so he went to the well, and then mm-hmm. all of a sudden he like totally blows off the whole water thing and starts talking about spiritual stuff. Yeah, it gets on his <coughs> number one thing on his mind. Let's talk about that. What is Jacob's well? Who remembers that? Is that where they were arguing? Him and Lot were arguing. No, maybe not. Open anyway, or he said rather than for Abraham, I mean, and Lot were arguing. And he said rather than to have guys arguing or fighting, you know. Let's. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. 
Actually, why don't we do this? Let's read these passages from Isaiah because they're key to this, to understanding what's going on here. And what I need is, is volunteers. Let's read Isaiah 12, 1 to 4. Who would like to read that for me? I've got it. Then you will say on that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. Therefore you will joyous, joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. And in that day you will say, Give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, make them remember that his name is exalted. So right there, an indication that water is more than physical water. It's a source of salvation. And remember, when we're reading from Isaiah, we're reading from the holy Jewish scriptures. This is the Jewish Bible, folks, and a Jew would know these passages. Let's read Isaiah 44, 1 to 3. Who would like to do that for me? I got that one. The Lord says, People of Jacob, you are my servants. Listen to me. People of Israel, I chose you. This is what the Lord says, who made you, who formed you in your mother's body, who will help you. People of Jacob, my servants, don't be afraid, Israel, I chose you. I will pour out water for the thirsty land, and I will make streams flow on dry land. I will pour out my spirit into your children and my blessings on your descendants. So here, the focus is on the children of Jacob and how God will pour out streams of water. Streams of water. This is to children of Jacob. A promise that when you thirst or hunger or desire something, God will give it. He will give it in a way of salvation. Provide it in this idea of water. Let's do this last one, Isaiah 55, <coughs> 1-3. Who would like to read that for me? I can do that one too. Okay, the Lord says, All you who are thirsty, come and drink. Those of you who do not have money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk with money and without cost. Or without money, sorry, and without cost. Why spend your money on something that is not real food? Why work for something that doesn't really satisfy you? Listen closely to me and you will eat what is good. Your soul will enjoy the rich food that satisfies. Come to me and listen. Listen to me so you may live. I will make an agreement with you that will last forever. I will give you the blessings I promised to David barely keep up <laughs> this is free folks it's free it's spiritual it's in a sense something that will satisfy your soul and is completely satisfying let me write this completely satisfying and if you caught it and of course it's from God this prophet Isaiah is speaking from God it is the source of a covenant what is a covenant a promise contract a binding contract it's not I may do this it's not I might think about doing this it is I promise to do this and I'm sealing this as a covenant and this living water is a covenant now with all of that being said all of a sudden in the first century we find Jesus has just happened to find his way to Jacob's well is this an accident Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Said he had to go through <clears throat> Samaria. No, because remember, 
he could have gone around it. Samaria isn't all of this. It's this. He but could in have, verse 4 it says, yeah. on the way he had to go. So okay, and, okay so tell me why you think he had said he had to go. Why? He had an appointment at Jacob's well. Yeah, that's it, right? <laughs> that's it. This is the... I, God has decided I'm going there, and I'm going there. It goes back to what Steve said about Jesus knows your personal details. This is it. He knew he needed to go meet that yep. woman yep. at the well. At this was, this was <laughs> and maybe I could put the word in here, divinely appointed. There was a plan, folks. And yes, this I agree with. He had to go because this was part of the plan. It was always part of the plan. Now let's talk about the well. Okay, so we see here huge connection to Jacob's well and to the Old Testament. What does, when I say the Old Testament, the Old Testament, the word testament in English is another name for something else. It starts with a C. Covenant. Covenant. The Old Covenant. So now we're making a connection with the quote, Old Covenant. This well, what did you notice about when Jesus went to this well? Well, okay, he was thirsty and weary, but what time of day? When he knew there would be people coming. Ooh, no, no, now let's be careful here. Or when he knew she would be coming. Yes. <laughs> let's talk about the sixth hour. Now, now, depending on your reckoning, and this is a bit of a little controversy in the New Testament, Jews reckon time one way, Romans reckon it a different way, Judeans and Galileans tend to reckon it maybe even a third way, but... Universally, it's, it's kind of agreed here. The sixth hour means midday. Sixth hour meaning if you consider the first hour to be sunrise. The sixth hour is high noon. Where are we at in the world, folks? Is this Iowa at high noon in September? Where is this? Time to get a drink. It's hot. It's blazing hot. Now, here is the key. This is the cultural piece. At the hottest part of the day, what are people tending to be doing during the hottest part of the day? Not being out. Yeah. <laughs> they are not being out, folks. They are inside. The well, people go to the well in the morning and the evenings. Why? Because for the same reason the deer do. <laughs> they go when it's cool, when the sun is not blazing hot, and all of their friends are coming. So the time to go to the well is the morning and the evening. That is when all the people would be there. Now, who goes to the well? In culturally speaking, who goes to the well? Women. It ain't men. Servants. It's, it's, it's women. And yes, it could be male <laughs> servants, but mostly women. Mostly women servants. Jesus goes to the well at high noon. So that, first of all, is very odd. Who does he run into at the well? That's it, Rodney. That is exactly it. He runs into a woman who is also trying not to mingle with anyone from her groups. Why? Because she is an outcast. Why is she an outcast? Doesn't have a husband and is, I guess, prostitute or I don't sleep. Hard to say. Hard to say. Um, she's, she is not married. She has had at least five husbands, right? And just interestingly enough, the man she's living with is not her husband. What does that say about God saying about living with people? Does that equate to marriage? That's biblical. So she, he goes to the well. He goes to the well of an enemy, the Samarians, okay, or Samaritans. Meets this, this woman, has this conversation. None of this is an accident. This is, you know, Steve is absolutely right on. This is all meant to be here. And then what? Then what? What is the conversation they have? 
basically Jesus comes out and tells her, you know, through the whole conversation, he identifies himself as the Christ, not only to someone that is not yep. a Jew, but to a person that is, you know, looked down upon. This is huge. This is really his first um, opening himself up and saying that I am the Christ to someone besides his disciples. This is huge. This is absolutely right. And keep in mind, too, that when, when you look at Jesus self-identifying as the Messiah, it is rare, folks. It, you might be surprised by that. He actually self-identifies with a term that's the most commonly used in the Gospels. Do you know what that phrase is? Son of man. Son of man. That's his favorite term. Here, he deliberately and explicitly identifies himself as, quote, the Messiah. What is the Messiah? Rescuer of the people of God. Okay, let's write this. Rescuer of God's people. What else? Where did we figure out what? What is? Where did we hear about Messiah? It's a fulfillment of all the prophecies. Yes, this is a fulfillment of prophecy. Where? <clears throat> All the way back in the Garden of Eden. Yep. From the beginning of time and through Holy Scriptures. What we call the Old Testament, what a Jew would call the Hebrew Bible. And Messiah means something. Do you know what the, and it's probably in your footnotes, what, is the, what does the term Messiah mean or Christ? Anointed. Anointed one. Christos, which is the Greek, comes from the verb krio, which means to literally to smear or wipe oil on someone. Okay? Now that might seem weird to you. Remember, we're talking about anointing. Anointing with oil. You would, you would anoint someone with oil by wiping oil or, you know, you know uh, perfume or what have you on someone's forehead or anoint their head. Anointed one. Christ. Jesus is self-identifying with that person. Now we should go back to what were the Jews of the first century expecting out of a Messiah? We've talked about this before. Conqueror. Conqueror. They were expecting basically David. David. To be, mm-hmm. you know. David-like. <coughs> yes. And what, what is David? He was the king of all of Israel. A warrior. And he was a warrior. Warrior he king. saved them from yep. the Philistines, and so mm-hmm. their new Messiah would save them from Yes, Rome. yes. Military leader. Maybe, what is David? He's human. Mm-hmm. They expected a human being. Okay. They expected an earthly king. Yes, an earthly king on a throne crowned by his people. We've got this guy that for all intents and purposes, this woman saw just wander out of the desert. She may not have even seen his disciples because they went off to get food and drink. This guy just wanders up who obviously is identifying as a Jew. And that's another good point here. Jesus does self-identify as a Jew here. There's no question about it, in case you're wondering, no. He's not just a Christian, because he is Christ. He is a Jew, and he self-identifies as such. And um, just real quick here, um, the author, you caught that, I hope, here in verse 9. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Who is the author talking to there? 
and us meaning who? Gentiles. Gentiles. The, the author is writing the book of John, at least in part, to non-Jews so he can explain their customs because a non-Jew would be like, well, why is this such a big deal? <laughs> I think we should point out that <clears throat> Jesus comes to her whereas a king, there's Ooh, no, this is so good. no chance that she'd ever get to so good. sit before the king. This is so great. <clears throat> he also knew she was looking for the, waiting for Messiah to... Yeah, I think we over we can overlook that. What Lorna said that, like this Samaritan said, is waiting for the Messiah. Yeah. <clears throat> and 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 she also says, "What about the well? It was given to her by what? What does it say here?" Father Jacob. Yeah, our Father Jacob. The Samaritans at this point are still <laughs> identifying as common descendants of the Jews. They are related, and she identifies as that. They're half Jew and half Greek, aren't they? Mm. Samaritans. They're 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 ninety nine percent Samaritan and one percent everything else. I mean, they're they're very different culturally, religiously, and this is the big, you know. Remember, Jews of the first century, they're not going to associate with them because of that. So this is a great point. Are you the one that said about the king coming to them? king comes to her a lowly member of society what king would do that in the first century what king would do that today what Jewish male would come to a Samaritan woman this violates every law this breaks it all it's kind of interesting getting a little off track we're we're good at that Steve this conversation kind of evolved or developed where it starts off with you know, Christ saying living water and the woman thinking, yeah. oh, I can come and get my bucket filled but I won't have to keep coming back to this This well. is it. And Jesus turns that conversation into a spiritual conversation. Yep. You know, he gets personal with her. Then she kind of distracts or changes the conversation yep. because it's already gotten a little too personal. That's it. Um, and then he turns it and goes full spiritual. Yep. And what does that do with the woman? As we read here, in the end, did she go running away saying, this is so weird, dude, I'm out of my mind here. I never want to come back to this well. She went to tell the guys. She believed. Yeah, she accepted it. Mm -hmm. She believed. The only real miracle here is, is the fact that Jesus knew everything about her. Now, the author of John likes to point out these so-called signs. We're about to, in the next passage, talk about his second sign. But this is also a miracle, folks. Don't get it wrong. Jesus, God, knows you. He knows you through and through, your heart, your soul, and your past. And it's a transforming moment for this woman who, when Jesus patiently describing to her what he's talking about, when he first said it and she didn't understand, did he go, gosh, you're so stupid. Dude, I'm wasting my time. Moving on. You're gross anyway. I don't want to talk to you. What did he do? He's patient. But he's direct. And he's not beating around the bush, folks. But he's also not so much, and again, this is another rabbit hole, he's not judgmental. Certainly not. Because why? Because he is willing to tell her the truth, the gospel, to share it with her and tell her that he's the Messiah without first bashing her over the head about everything she's doing wrong. 
all she did was all he did was point it out as probably a means to establish his divine authority, his miraculous capabilities. He said, I know, I know who you are, and I love you anyway. That's it. He's like totally showing a perfect example of how he wanted the Jews yes. from the very beginning to associate with people outside of the Jews. He told them not to associate with them <coughs> yep. because he knew that they weren't capable of doing this. You know, like he wanted them to associate with them and like spread his word to yes. them. He didn't want them to yep. associate with them and then take on their huh? bad habits. But yeah. then the Jews, when they came back from exile, mm -hmm. they went so far zealous the other yeah. way because they were so afraid of like repeating their previous mm -hmm. mistakes that like Jesus is back to say, like, this is how I wanted you to be in the beginning. This can illustrate a fact <coughs> that in, if coming from a good place, sometimes we can sin. In this case, coming from a good place probably meant the Jews wanted to preserve their, their truth. And remember, the whole entirety of the Old Testament is Israel struggling with who God is and not following other gods and not following pagan gods. The Jews of the first century are just trying to keep it together. Remember, the first century, this is not a Jewish kingdom. I mean, you can call it a kingdom in the sense that there was this guy Herod, and then, of course, his, um, <clears throat> his descendants, uh, uh, Herod Antip Antipater, um, uh, or Antipas, so on and so forth. But this was, make no mistake, those were just kind of local rulers. This was a place ruled by Rome, completely infiltrated with Hellenistic thought, which is the Greek thought of philosophy and running around nude and, and their, their pantheon of different gods. This was not a pure Jewish kingdom at this point. And so, probably out of a good place originally, the Jews are trying to preserve what they have left preserve their culture, preserve their religion, and keep it pure. But what we've seen here, and what you can draw a parallel to today is, that ends up distorting itself into something horrible that Jesus is trying now to fix, saying, look, you gotta, you gotta cut this crap out. I know who you are, and I love you anyway. And you're part of the kingdom too. Okay. Let's go ahead and, and read on. We're going to read verses 27. And let's go through 27 to 42. Just then his disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Or why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village, telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. But Jesus replied, I have a kind of food you know nothing about. Did someone bring him food while we were gone? The disciples asked each other. <laughs> then Jesus explained, My nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. You know the saying, four months between planting and harvest. But I say, wake up and look around. The fields are already ripe for the harvest. <clears throat> Excuse me. The harvesters are paid good wages, and the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike? You know the saying, one plants and another harvests, and it's true. I sent you to the harvest where you didn't plant. Others had already done the work, and now you will get to gather the harvest. 
many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, He told me everything I ever did. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. So he stayed for two days, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. Then, then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the Savior of the world. Love this. I love how Jesus loves to answer questions that people didn't ask overtly. <laughs> but he knew they were thinking it in their heart. He's like, no, I'm not going to ask that, that verbal thing you just threw at me. I'm going to ask the question that's in your heart. And it has to do with this idea of sowing and reaping here. What does this mean? What does sowing and reaping mean here? people like John the Baptist he wasn't there for the reaping he was there to sow the seeds of that there's a new kingdom and that you need to be ready and that there was someone else who was coming and then the disciples got to be the ones who and Jesus too is sowing this term is used a lot in the New Testament spero it's the Greek means to sow what do you sow seed Seed. yes seed sowing Cloth is is uh, uh, raphis or raphizo. It's not the same thing. So it's not like in English we use the same word. Here, sowing just means sowing seed. What is the seed in this case? The message. The message. What message? Of the coming kingdom. Yeah, the, the gospel, the message. John the Baptist started it <clears throat> by saying, um, I am preparing the way of the new kingdom, essentially, a way of the Lord. And now he has said that the one that I'm preparing this for is here, and it's Christ. And, and John identifies Jesus as the Messiah. Now Jesus is taking over, okay? How does this... Okay, we've answered the sowing. What does the reaping mean? Since the people coming. Yes. Believing. Yes. You sow the seed to 100 people. How many of them are going to give their life to Christ eventually? There's no right answer here. I can tell you what the answer is. Less than 100. That's exactly it. It's less than 100. God knows that. You should know that. Don't be discouraged. I would say that uh, the the prophets also were doing sowing. Very good. This isn't just John the Baptist. It isn't just Jesus. Folks, people have been sowing the word, sowing the seed for thousands of years. Okay. Now, to take a little heat off yourself, you're not the first. You won't be the last. And think of it this way, too, that the people that you share the gospel with, yes, in some cases, you might be the very first person to tell them about Jesus. You probably, I hope, won't be the last. But in a lot of cases, you're not the first person to tell them about Jesus. Now, you might be the first one to tell them the truth about Jesus. Don't get me wrong. But God is saying you're a link in a chain. You're a link in a chain, and that's a good thing. You're going to do a lot of work yourself, you're going to also participate in work that has been going on before you, but the end is still the same goal, what, what Steve said, that at some point people will give their lives to Jesus. And when I say give their lives to Jesus, what do I mean by that? Come to Christ. They'll come to Christ, which means what? They believe. They believe. Accept him as Savior, as King. Salvation see that he is the Messiah of all people. Yes. They will believe. Pisteo or patho. They will, they will be persuaded. 
that Jesus is who he says he is. And they will have pistis, which is faith or entrustment. They will entrust <coughs> Jesus with their lives and their souls. And if they do that, it's a harvest. It's a harvest of what has been sown. And again, John is really good about using physical kind of explanations for things so that we can understand them. I'm glad he does, because otherwise I wouldn't get any of this. I think about a seed, the word sowed. You scatter a lot of seed. Some of it falls on the rocks and and is eaten very quickly by the birds, in this case, Satan. Some of it falls upon thin soil and sprouts, but it very quickly dies because it had no root. That's people that hear the word and they come to church a couple of times and then say, man, I don't get it and I like my life and I'm good and they wither away. Others will fall upon good soil, but that has thorns, acanthus in Greek, thorn bushes. They'll grow up They'll take root, but they'll be choked out by the worries of the world. Their faith is not strong. Their entrustment is so weak, every little thing, dink, knocks them right off the path. But for some, they will fall on good soil. They will grow deep roots. They will flourish. And then what will they do? What does a healthy, natural plant do when it grows and flourishes? It makes more seed. It makes more seed. And before it makes more seed, what do you do with that harvest? You gather the harvest, you reap. Jesus is making a huge point here, folks. He's making a huge point here. The harvest is plentiful. The harvest is already ready for some people. Think of it this way. The, the, the process of sowing and reaping is constant. It's not all happening at the same time. At the moment that you are sowing seed with one of your coworkers, God might be reaping a harvest of someone, family member you've told 20 years ago. God is reaping a harvest, a great harvest, and your, your efforts should be focused on both. It should be focused on both. Sowing the word with those who don't believe, helping to reap and grow those who do accept the word. I love this analogy. The Bible says God's word will ne- never return void. So we may some, they say something that makes somebody think, and they may come yep. to Christ later on. We may never know it, but we don't need to know it. It's not important for us to know it. It's important for them to come to Christ. I think that's huge, Lauren. I think it's huge for our psychology to not get discouraged. I Honestly, if I see someone in my life give their lives to Christ, I will say my children are probably the number one thing I see, that I have worked very hard to teach them about God. Two of my children have been baptized. That's me seeing the fruits of my labor. But I think the majority of the time I'm not going to see it. I hate to say that. I'm going to sow it, and I have a life, and I meet a lot of people, and I've lived in a lot of places. I may not see people come to Christ eventually, that I was the link in a chain. And don't get me wrong, folks. There's people like Billy Graham. They sowed once, and it brought 100,000 people at once to Christ. It does happen. But more often than not, he was a link in a chain. And I hate to use chain because it sounds so awful, but it really is kind of, you know, if you think of it as a step in a process, it might take a person 40 years to finally get after all this time and all these people telling him about Jesus and about the Holy Spirit drawing them to him to finally be saved. Don't be discouraged. It says right here, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. What does that imply, Ken? Well, to me, it reminds me of all the 
years that I told my ex-wife that you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this. And she wouldn't listen, wouldn't listen, wouldn't listen, or vice versa. She would tell me. And then I would go sit down with a buddy, and he'd say it once, and I'd change. And yep. she'd say, I've been telling you this for years. Yep. You know? But what this specifically tells me is that all she had to do was go and say, hey, I think maybe this is the guy. Come you see yep. for yourself. Mm-hmm. And that gives me a little opportunity. <clears throat> it takes a lot of pressure off me as far as telling people about Jesus that mm-hmm. I get to just say, come here and see for yourself. And, and when you say, come here and see for yourself, today I don't have Jesus of Nazareth standing right next to me physically, <laughs> as he did in the first century. Who do I have? Me. Well, you have the Holy Spirit living <clears throat> in you. This is the right answer. There is a right answer. Thank you. Gold star. Gold star. It takes two to tango, folks. Okay, this is not this is not a teddy bear. Oh my. I know. I'm, no matter what I draw, this is going to be awful. This is you, plus the Holy Spirit. It takes you to be a vessel for God's message. Skew us. Okay, well, <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Here, we'll do this then. With no, big muscles. The first time. There you go. <laughs> big muscles. Little <laughs> Who saves people on this earth? Jesus saves. Jesus. How many people has Billy Graham saved on the earth? None. Don't be so worked up, folks. Do your part. Be a vessel, a messenger. What's another name for messenger? Angel. Angelos, angel. You're not a spiritual angel, but you are an angel. Angeleo. You are, you are declaring or bringing good tidings to people. You are God's messenger. You have to play your part. The Holy Spirit will play its part. That's what it's saying here. That's an awesome message. It takes, it takes some of the pressure off me to say, look, it's not all about me. It also says I can work together. It, it's not all on you. Look around, folks. You have your Christian brothers and sisters right here in this room to help you at a moment's notice. You may have many others that are not even in this room. And sometimes it will take a lot of us. Okay. You know, she's sharing her experience, yeah. you know, and you know how she was changed and what mm-hmm. she saw. And... You know, just by sharing that makes them interested. Yep. They want to go see, then they can experience it as well. Kind of puts it on us that we, we really only have to share what he's done for yeah, us. For us, you know, this is this is it. My life. This is great. <clears throat> it's well, it's like, not a con, a condemning message. Yep. Right. Yeah. And it's not some a. Some people do. <laughs> it's not some, you know. I don't know, you know, put together this whole big long thing about who he is and where he came from and why and all that. So it's really about this is what he's done in my life. This is exactly it, folks. Your sharing of the gospel is two-part. It is your personal experience. Folks, Jesus didn't just come up to this woman and go, bam, (laughs) believe. What's wrong with you, kick? What did he do? He talked to her. He developed a relationship. He developed a relationship. He treated her as an equal. 
He and treated he, her with respect. And he also didn't start to recite the Levitical law and point out to her. You're breaking this law. You're Not right off the law. bat. <laughs> yes, right, yes, right, right, right off the bat. But it, she knew already, too. Yeah. And Folks, I think that's, that's it. Like, like we, we overlook, oh, we, that street preacher's just out there preaching condemnation. He's so evil. It's so not. Yep. But like, he didn't need to preach condemnation. Like, we, we quote John 3.16, yeah. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, the world might be saved. It says he didn't come for condemnation because the world was already condemned. You know, the people he came to already knew they were condemned under the law. Who is, what's the problem when you only do this? Which is, again, coming from a good place, I think people, and rightly so, share truth. But when you only share truth, and you're standing on a corner to complete strangers, and you're going, bam, what's wrong with you, right? You're going to hell, here's a big sign. How many people give their lives to Christ? I mean, she already. Some might, but mostly. I mean, she was coming to the well at noon because she didn't want to be judged by people. Yep. Like, there's, she already knew that. Well, well, and I want to point out, too, that, like, so in this case, Jesus shared and she believed right away. Mm-hmm. But even with Jesus, sometimes he would share his message and people wouldn't believe right away. So even yeah. in Jesus' case, the Savior of the world, he didn't have 100% sowing and reaping, you know. This is an excellent point. He didn't have a 100% track record. Why should you expect to have one? And the opposite of that is some people took a very long time to finally come come to accept Jesus as their Savior. There are a number of people that thought they were following him, but when things got too personal, too direct, when Jesus really started to make it very clear he was, in fact, God himself, he was co equal with God. The scriptures record a lot of his followers ditched him. His a lot own of his followers, his own family him. thought he was, quote, out of his mind. <laughs> I was on the way to a birthday party one time and someone told me, someone close to me told me, don't talk about religion or politics. And I said, okay, politics, okay, fine. But uh, then I, when, uh, I remembered in the Bible where the disciples, or the apostles, were beaten and told not to preach, not to teach anymore. And where did they find them right after that? They were in the synagogue te- teaching again. So why can't we, you know, we don't, you don't preach a sermon or, you know, go on and on about it, but you can put in a word or two. Here's my point. I think it's right. I don't have to, on the train, striking up a conversation with the person next to me. As soon as they tell me, so, where are you from? And, you know, what do you do? Okay, hold on a minute. You know, let me start quoting Bible verses, right? (laughs) Jesus starts with what? Her physical needs. Mm -hmm. At least that's the starting point. And if you look at the New Testament, when the, the apostles and their, you know, their students disciples go out and, and spread the word, almost always the very first thing that they're doing is trying to meet the physical needs of the people they're preaching to. In this case, all it was was a conversation about what this woman was lacking in her life. It was a conversation about what she was struggling with and her desperation. And it just organically flowed into, well, I have an answer for you. I know you're thirsty. I know you're seeking something. You came to the well in the middle of the day to avoid everyone. Obviously, you're hurting. I can tell you about something that will transform your life. Why does that have to be religion? Meeting their physical needs is the first step of showing someone love. 
Yes. You know, how can you preach salvation yep. to someone starving and homeless? This is it. And the first thing that they need is something to eat and a place to sleep. We do, um, we have partnered with um, the homeless uh, uh, organization in Des Moines. Remind me who that is, where you Joppa. go. Say it again. Joppa. Joppa. The, the organization in Des Moines where um, people go, a lot of Christian uh, churches partner to go and help to build uh, either tiny homes or renovate homes or help people who are, who are homeless to get into a home. The, the organizers of Joppa make it very clear, your job as a Christian to help partner with us is not, as soon as you walk in, to start banging them on the forehead with the gospel. His point is, you need to show your love for them by trying to meet their physical needs, and in doing so, opens the door. door. And then, once their their belly is full, and there's a roof over their head, you can go to town on all, right? Well, and Jesus, when he says, like, where were you, like, who fed me, and who clothed me, and like, at the judgment day, he didn't, he's not saying, nowhere in that speech is he saying, who did you preach salvation to? He said, who did you meet their Mm -hmm. needs physically? So I think that he's saying that that's an important part of being a Christian is meeting people's needs. Folks, why did Christianity explosively grow? You think coronavirus. I hate to make the analogy with a virus. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that's a huge mistake. Christianity exploded in the first century. Why? Because people like you and me went into the cities where people were desperately poor, where they were sick, they were hungry, they were dying, and and they helped them. They healed them. Even... Pagan and agnostic writers of the first and second century admitted, we admit, the reason why Christianity is working is because the Christians will go and help someone with leprosy and and clean up their filth and take care of them and help heal them, and we're not even willing to do that. We admit it. And when they do that, they share the gospel. Something that bothers me in the church today is that uh, it's so easy for us to write a check. Yep. This is it. Write a check to the church, and somebody else will go, you know, fill these needs. Yep. You know, it's, it, it's, and it's everybody just writes yep. your check, gives it to somebody, and they hire someone to yep. go do your work. It's, yep. There's not enough, and I'm Roll my sleeves fully up. convicting myself here. Yep. There's not enough going out and, and you showing the love yep. to somebody. Love that. Excellent. Let's go ahead and finish up here. Let's read verses 43 to the end, which is 54. When you get to my age, though, you can't get up and go to some, some places. You can't maneuver, you know. No, so. but you've got neighbors that live next to you. Yeah. And, I mean, we yeah. all have a exactly. sphere of yeah. influence and people that interact with us. You don't have to go build a house, Florida. No. Yeah. <laughs> you know, sitting and listening to your neighbor who's lonely is serving their needs. Sitting with them to watch Jeopardy in the afternoon is serving their needs, right? Playing bingo with them on Sunday. Maybe that evolves into bringing them coffee when they run out. I don't know. You don't have to, you know. Being humble on Facebook and meeting the needs. Thank you, sir. Thank you. (laughs) Two days later, Jesus left and went to Galilee. Jesus had said before that a prophet is not respected in his own country. When Jesus arrived in Galilee, the people there welcomed him. They had seen all the things he did at the Passover feast in Jerusalem because they had been there too. Jesus went again to visit Cana in Galilee where he had changed the water into wine. One of the king's important officers lived in the city of Capernaum and his son was sick. 
When he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to Jesus and begged him to come to Capernaum and heal his son, because his son was almost dead. Jesus said to him, You people must see signs and miracles before you will believe in me. The officer said, Sir, come before my child dies. Jesus answered, Go, your son will live. The man believed what Jesus told him and went home. On the way, the man's servants came and met him and told him, Your son is alive. The man asked, At what time did my son begin to get well? They answered, Yesterday at one o'clock the fever left him. The father knew that one o'clock was the exact time that Jesus had said, Your son will live. So the man and all the people who lived in his house believed in Jesus. That was the second miracle Jesus did after coming from Judea to Galilee. I skipped over the most important part here. When we, back in the last section, when Jesus self-identifies as the Messiah, your English translation may be close to mine, which is, I who speak to you am he. Yes, that is the conceptual meaning. The, the literal writing here is, Jesus says, ego me." What does that mean? I am. I am. What the heck does that mean to a Jew of the first century? I am God, and not just the Messiah. I am God himself. That is God's name in the Old Testament, folks, one of them. That's big. What reactions do you have for this last piece here? And first of all, the, the official son, Basilica. So we're, we're presuming here, this is a Roman Gentile. If it were a Jew, it's, it's thought the author would have said something here. <clears throat> So now he's, first, he is started with the Jews. Step one, he started with the Jews. The next passage in this very chapter, he went then to the Samaritans. Now he is talking to the Gentiles. What does this tell you about salvation? It's for all. It's for everybody. Everybody. Possible for all. And he demonstrated by this miracle, too, that... You don't have to be present. You know, he has power in the distance. This kid was, who knows how far away the sun was, but it wasn't right next to him where they brought him to him. This is, this is one of the big, I think, questions that Christians and maybe even non-Christians have. Is my prayer for others powerful and effective, even if maybe they are not believers? I'm going to tell you, at least from my presumption here, obviously this official has recognized something in Jesus that he sees as um, something that he thinks is real. That doesn't necessarily mean that he is a pious Jew, probably not at all, or a proselyte. He probably doesn't follow the Jewish customs, um, you would think. And his kid, probably even less so. Can you pray for people who may or may not even be Christian, and will God interfere in their lives or intervene? Yes. Yes. This is awesome. You know, this idea that i got to pray for myself, and I'm praying for you, and you said, you know, we throw out this idea. Well, I'm thinking about and praying for you. I really hope everyone in this room, if you say you're praying for someone, you're actually praying for them. But if you do pray for them, and they're non-believers, can God help them? 100% yes. 100%. And, and this other part here, which looks like an arrow, distant. You don't have to touch Jesus. Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. I prayed for my grandson-in-law when he was over in Afghanistan, huh? and uh, he, brought, he he was an officer. And uh, but anyway, he came back, and 
I still prayed for him. My, him and my granddaughter separated. Mm -hmm. And I prayed for him. He'd been over to Afghanistan six months. Mm -hmm. He come back and his wife didn't want him. Mm -hmm. So I still prayed for him. Mm -hmm. He was still in the military. Mm -hmm. And even though they weren't together, I still prayed for him. Excellent. Never give up. Even though, you know, they weren't together. Yep. Very good. Yep. What else? Seems to me that this royal officer heard some things about Jesus, but I don't know. I mean, we yep. know this isn't necessarily chronological, but I don't see anything about healing before this time. And now he comes to him and he says, Hey, can you heal my son? Can you? <clears throat> Well, there is a clue at the end here. It says, your son will live. And then it goes, so he and all of his household believed. Mm -hmm. It seems as though the belief, the real belief, <laughs> happened after this. So, you know, this is kind of the idea of the blind man who goes to Jesus and it takes two tries to heal him. Okay. Well, it didn't take two tries. Jesus was doing something very deliberate. The blind man comes to him. And he, uh, and he basically rubs some you know, mud and spit on his eyes, and he kind of sees. And then he does it a second time, and then, and then he did see. He, he was completely healed. I, I believe, my interpretation of the New Testament is, that if you go to Christ, and you are a non-believer, and you say, please, if you're real, prove it. Mm -hmm. Prove it to me. Um, you know... He will. He will. He will reach out and he will provide opportunities for you to trust him. Mm -hmm. but, but sometimes coming to Christ fully takes time and might take a lot of intervention on God's part. Look, folks, I'm not going to lie to you. I had a lot of intervention in my life where I was really ready to say, yes, this is it. Wouldn't we love to believe that it could just be, you know, rub the mud in your eyes and not quite believe, but then, okay, let's do it again. And, yep. and now I do. Sometimes that's a... 10, 20, 30, 40 year That's right. span between yep. mud and the eye mm -hmm. for us. Yeah. What do we think that he, so in verse 45, said that they had seen all the things he did at the Passover feast, mm -hmm. but then in 54 he says this was the second miracle Jesus did. So the author of John is very clear. There were miracles in addition to the seven signs that are not recorded. Hmm. So I think this is, this is the author's way of saying, I'm going to show you a written, I'm going to write down this one in its detail. There were many other things that happened. And, and even in the previous chapters, it says the same thing. It's like Mary knowing that, hey, Jesus, make this water wine. Yeah. She'd seen him do other stuff. Yeah, although the text records that was his first miracle, that's a, that's a side conversation, but I think you could say that once the miracle started happening, the author records, there's plenty, look folks, this is not comprehensive and don't think it is. This, this right here, this much right here, is three years probably or more of Jesus' life. Um, if you go on Twitter this morning and you read about the Iowa caucus thing, you'll get a lot more than this for a, for a one-day <coughs> event, right? This is not comp comprehensive. Oh, I was just going to say, couldn't it also just be referring back to what the author of John did tell us about his actions at Passover? When it, it could be, but if you remember a couple of chapters earlier, it said uh, Jesus did other things. So, I mean, 
I was just wondering how it spoke to mm -hmm. what this officer knew about mm -hmm. Jesus. Because mm -hmm. he obviously knew that Jesus was capable of healing people, I feel like, or why would he have even come to Jesus? Mm -hmm. He felt like he had some sort of authority, mm -hmm. you know. He'd seen enough to, to believe enough. Maybe. Right. I would also counter that, that, that while I think that is true, I think desperate people will do anything. And I think if my children were deathly ill, and I didn't know God, I okay, fine, all of the doctors of the period couldn't do anything, fine, this faith healer, who people are saying is literally like healing people, right? Performing miracles. I'll, I'll take a chance. Maybe it, it does work. Um, but I think here, Jesus is, you know, Jesus is clear in the other Gospels too. He only heals when people are, are willing to believe. He, he, only, he doesn't do it as a magic trick. And you remember Herod, <clears throat> Um, when he goes before Herod at his trial, Herod's like, hey, Jesus, I've heard you do awesome magic tricks. Do a magic trick for me. And he's like, forget you. I'm not doing anything for you. Why? Jesus doesn't do tricks to amaze you. He does it because he wants to convince you he is who he is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he takes it. He, the, the, he uses it to teach, yeah. not, not only just to, to wow people, but right. he uses it to teach people and to show people who he is and even when he does a miracle that is spectacular he raised Lazarus from the dead there were people that didn't believe I'm sorry folks if I see a guy who's been dead for four days and stinks come walking out of that grave that man is who he says he is I'm sorry he is well, it's interesting he says sir come down come down he asked him to go with him come with him to his before his son dies and Jesus says go your son lives. Mm -hmm. I think about how I'd react. Be like, "Come on, man!" You know, exactly. Like, dude. I've heard it said that he didn't say, "Come on, man. just come with." He me. might have left that dejected. <clears throat> I think it's a great point, Ken. He might have been like, "Great, this guy's a fraud." And it says when he was part of the way home, they all came running to him to say, "Hey, your son's out. Your son's alive." Oh my gosh, this is such a good point. I haven't thought of this. Think of this man's faith journey. Started at zero. Maybe had some hope prayed or talked to God and said, if you are who you are, can you please help me? Went away, probably dejected. Probably thinking it was even worse. Yes. But did that stop God from interfering or intervening? No. no. Another thing is that, like, he put together that yesterday at 1 o'clock, my son was healed. Yesterday at 1 o'clock, I talked to God, Jesus. Jesus. Yep. And he put it together, and he didn't just assign it to coincidence, yes. right? Like a lot of times today. We have something happen, we pray about it, it comes to fruition, and we say, it might, it was probably a coincidence. Absolutely. When we have the evidence that we prayed about it and that God answered our prayer, we want to assign it to Keep a prayer journal. All right. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next week.